Turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes 7, and I'll ask you to hold your finger at Ecclesiastes 7, and then turn to Luke. So we'll first read a small portion of Scripture from Luke 12. So first, Luke 12, I'll read verses 13 to 21. Luke 12, verses 13, this is God's holy word. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother, that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will will I bestow my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take Thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Amen. And now flip to Ecclesiastes 7. And the words which I would like to bring your attention to specifically come at the very end of verse 2. Ecclesiastes 7 verses 1 and 2. Again, God's word. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Amen. Precious words for us to consider. It could be said that the whole purpose of a standing army and and navy and air force is so that a nation might be ready for war. Perhaps also to prevent war, but it's really the same thing, right? You you could say that. Um, Pearl Harbor, okay, December 7th, 1941. 
Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. Over 2,000 people were killed. Americans were killed. Massive wreckage to our Navy and Air Force there. America, despite whatever conspiracies you might read, America, the government, was simply not prepared. Okay? Um, Some of you might be having people over for lunch today in your homes. And, And how silly would it be, ladies... You, who, you know, chiefly are the ones preparing the food and whatnot. How silly would it be if when they get to the house, you know, whatever, 1 o'clock, 1230 or whatnot, all right, well, let's go in the kitchen and see what's in the fridge. How insulting that would be. I mean, it's just you're not prepared to have people over. The food's not ready. Uh, children, birthday party. Think about the preparations for a birthday party. You have to invite people. They need to know they can be there. What games you're going to play, all that. The food you're going to have there. How silly would it be? How, how hurtful would it be if you didn't prepare, if your parents didn't prepare for your birthday party? Preparation, readiness, is all around us. It's very important. You, you, you may not be a soldier, probably not a soldier here. Okay, You, you may not be uh, having people over for lunch after the service. You may not have a birthday this week, but all of you will die. All of you will die. In fact, the most important thing, I, I, I think it's important for, for preachers to speak in the superlative. The most important thing that you can prepare for is your own death. Now, our life is, is for the glory of God, but if from a certain perspective, you could say this, that all of your life is to prepare you for your death. All, all, not all of you will be in the military. Not all of you will, you know, get married and have children or whatever. All of you will die. And you all need to be prepared for it. It's even in this verse here, this section It's the end of all men. Unless you're Enoch or Elijah, and perhaps you could say if those who are here when Christ returns, all of you will die. And I want to speak to you on on this, not just death, but preparing. Preparing for your own death. The duty, it's duty. The duty of the preparation for death. And I want to speak to you under three headings, as I've done before here. First, the exposition of this text. Secondly, it's doctrine, helping us understand what it actually teaches. There's a difference. And then third, the application. So first, the exposition of really just the end in its context of this this, uh, verse here. Starting in verse 2 again, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. The living will lay it to his heart. Four points of exposition briefly. First, the topic of this sentence, this phrase here. The topic of this phrase is the death of a person and its immediate aftermath. 
Okay? The death of a person, not of an animal, needs to be said because we live in our world, don't we? And people confuse. You know, we, we are not against pets, of course, and we can mourn when our dog dies. But the dog doesn't have a soul that lives forever. And our culture's confusing that. You know, save the whales. I'm not against necessarily, I'm certainly not against being a custodian of the world. But when a whale dies, it's not the same thing as a human dies. And this is what's going on here. The death of a person. All people, man or woman, are made in the image of God. And part of what that means is that they live forever. You actually will live soul and body forever. It's the death of a person in its immediate aftermath. Notice it says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to its heart. It's not just the death, but it's the aftermath, the mourning, the house. There's, there's a dead person lying in the bed. People are mourning. You know, funeral, that kind of thing. This is what we're going to lay to our heart. That's the topic. Well, secondly... The subject of the sentence, and I'm speaking grammatically. Who are those who are acting here? It's those who are currently living. And the living will lay it to his heart. Living, um, whether uh, physically only or whether physically and spiritually. We prayed as elders before the service. And the elder who prayed asked, asked the Lord that he would convert those in our midst that are not converted, and that he would comfort those who are. It is a, a biblical truth that, that apart from very strange circumstances, which no preacher can, can know emphatically, is that whenever a preacher gets behind a pulpit like this, there are those in the room that are physically living, but are spiritually dead. And it's both those who are spiritually alive and spiritually dead, it's all those who are physically living, but I'm specifically bringing that up to you. I want to speak to both of you here. You may not even know if you're converted or not, but this applies to you. It's for you, those who are, who are still living. Well, third, the action of the sentence. And the living will lay it to his heart. The action of the sentence. A personal pondering and preparation for one's own death. That's what it means here. Uh, the living will lay it to his heart. There's an there's a, there's a, um, illustration. There's an, there's an idiom. There's a, there's a, um, we, we kind of read it, and you may not think about it, but in our English today, we, we talk about being burdened. You know, I'm, I'm just burdened right now. You know, you know. And maybe you're stressed out because of grades in college or something, and you're, and you're thinking about it. And I'm burdened for your kids. What does that mean? You're thinking about your kids. You don't have a, a package on your back. You're not burdened like an ox is burdened. But you're thinking about it. You're pondering it. You're reflecting. The living will lay it to his heart. He's going to think about it. Think about its ramifications and not just ponder it, which is useful in its own sense, but the, 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 the necessity of that, the logical necessity of that is to prepare for it. To think accordingly and to respond accordingly. All that's meant here. The living will lay it to his heart. This is the action of the sentence. You'll say to yourself, where is this person now? You'll think to yourself, is heaven real? 
Is hell real? Is it? What will heaven be like? What will hell be like? When will I die? Am I ready to die? How do I know that I'm ready to die? You see, the living will lay it to his heart. Some translations translate it slightly different, but I think the King James gives a good emphasis. He'll lay it to his heart. It's a personal thing. We're very covenantal. The name of this church, I believe, yes, covenant. Okay, we're very covenantal. That's very important. You know, our parents, our elders, they represent us, Christ. Okay, and that's good, and, and that's there. This is a personal thing. You, and you, and me. Well, fourth, the fourth point of exposition is the inference of the sentence. The inference of the sentence. You ought to do this. It's, an, it's more or less inferred. And the living will lay it to his heart. It's not just a description of what often happens after someone dies. Think about the last person that you've seen dead, or maybe the last funeral you went to. I'm assuming that you've seen a dead person before. You walk away from that, and it's a sobering thing. Usually people think about death for a little bit. Actually, the sad thing is some people don't, which is a mark of the work of the devil in their hearts to blind them. But it's more than just describing something. The force of the sentence comes to us by a command. You shall do this. You ought to do this. That's the idea. Now, of course, this command is in many other places of Scripture. I'm going to read three verses to you. Deuteronomy 32, 29. Oh, that they were wise. They understood this that they would consider their latter end. Psalm 90.12, which we'll, we'll be singing this later, I believe. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our, our hearts unto wisdom. One more verse. Psalm 39.4. This is a very good one. Lord, Make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. You're getting at the same idea, preparing for death. Well, secondly, I want you to look at the doctrine of this sentence. And I have four points, and this will be a longer section than the exposition. Well, the doctrine of this text here is this. The proper response upon observing a human death is to ponder and prepare for one's own. The proper response for observing a human death is to, prepare and, uh, is to ponder and prepare for one's own. Four points. 
And these four points serve to help you think about this doctrine, to convince you that it's true as well. First, let me clarify the participants of this exercise. Who should ponder prepare for death? Okay, well, I've, I've, you know, it's, all, it's, it's, it's those in this verse who've, who've just witnessed it, right? But it's not just for those who've just recently witnessed death, okay? As these commands I read from Psalm 90, 12, Psalm 39, 4. I want to pick three people who ought to participate. They ought to be participants in this exercise. The first is old people. Now, friends, I don't want to embarrass anyone. I'm not here to bring attention. Our church that we worship at is small, smaller, and we're proportionately young. I believe my kids will correct me afterwards. I think we have like 12 kids under the age of four. We have one couple that's older than 50. I don't know the proportion, but I see more older people here. Old people. Because your days are closer, statistically, closer to an end. And because God is gracious to sinners. Let's say you've lived for years without believing in Christ. Let's say that you've sinned some big sins. There's hope for you. The chief, the chief lesson of the thief on the cross who sees Christ while he's dying and understands the gospel and throws his heart upon Christ, the chief lesson of that is to teach you that salvation is by grace, that it's a free gift. Here's a man who's lived his whole life wickedly, I mean, you can understand why I would say that, right? He's a known public criminal. He's being put to death. And yet Christ says to him, today, you'll be with me in paradise. There's hope for you. That's why you should think about death. shouldn't despair. Old people. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift. Second person, sick people. Sick people, really for the same reason. Statistically, your days are, are shorter. I know of a man who's had serious cancer for a year now, and the chemotherapy is not responding. The doctors have said, you have a six to 12 months. Now, some of you may be sick. I, I heard a prayer for a sick person. I don't know how serious it is. God is gracious to you. Is given you time to think. Third, the third participant, young and healthy people. Young and healthy people ought to think about death. There's a temptation that you'll live a long time. You do not know how long you will live. I spoke to a lady last yesterday evening, afternoon, 
She told me that her father died. He wasn't 20. He was probably 40. But he was healthy. He died writing a sermon in his office about an hour or two before he was going to get into the pulpit. Heart attack. Done. Eternity. Car wrecks. A hunting accident. I've heard of that recently. How horrible. A hunting accident. Unloading a gun. Oh, wait. I thought it was unloaded. Dead. You don't know how long you'll live. So you ought to do this. Secondly, the second point under doctrine. Objections to this exercise. Now, I imagine there are some objections to this exercise, even in your midst, even in, my, in this room. Okay? I want to give you three objections. In other words, you object to this exercise. It's uncomfortable to think about my own death. Perhaps you're an anxious person. We're all anxious to some degree. Anxiety is not a sin in itself. It can be a sin. And this is an example of that. You see the title of the sermon, and you're like, uh, I was coming here to, be, to, to, be, to rejoice and to just be happy. <laughs> yeah. I know people like this. I've met them. It's uncomfortable to think about death. And that actually may be the case, honestly. But many things are our duty that are uncomfortable. Despite what my children might think, it's not comfortable to discipline children. It's biblical. I imagine for a godly magistrate, it would be uncomfortable to execute capital punishment, although it's biblical. It doesn't matter if it's uncomfortable. It's your duty. Secondly, it's a bad omen. Oh, wait a second. You're thinking to yourself, the pastor's preaching on death. I must be dying soon. I must, maybe the Lord's trying to tell me something. Listen, family, friends, you know, that's silly. Superstition is, is, uh, uh, is the idea that God's not in control of all things. I believe the Sabbath school is on the sovereignty of God. And, you know, Think about all the signs and numbers and you know, indicators of death. It's absolutely ridiculous. These things can represent and they can signify something. They have no power to act. No power to act. There is no power in, in the world except God. Martin Luther, I think I've even said this before, but Martin Luther is known to have said that the devil is God's devil. Now, there are demons and there are ghosts because they're demons, and there are, you know, demonic things and, you know, things like that. But no, it's not a bad omen. Christ, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, Christ is being described. And there's a, there's a kind of a, 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 you know, just kind of a, a throw-out phrase. We, lots of times those phrases in the Bible are full of meditations. Upholding all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3. Christ is upholding all things. There's no, you know, superstitious thing. We need to think about it. Thirdly, and, and most importantly, as time goes on, it's unnecessary. You might think to yourself it's unnecessary. 
I will prepare for death when it comes. Well, I've already kind of talked about that, haven't I? You don't know when you're going to die. But you might assume that you'll have the mental capacity to think. Um, and, you know, you, you, you might think of it that way. But here's something to think about. When you're dying, you may be taken up in the pain of your death. You don't be able to think about these things. Or you're overcome by the visits from others. Or, or perhaps because of modern medicine, you won't be able to think. Now, I'm not against medicine. More on that in a second. But it's, it's interesting. Archibald Alexander, in his book on thoughts and religious experience, said some very bold statements. I want you to think about it. He said this, When physicians can do nothing to cure, they think it right to lull their patients by opiates or excite them by alcohol. I have, when sick, been more afraid of nothing than these intoxicating and stupefying or even exhilarating drugs. Well, let no artificial means be ever used with me in that dread hour to interrupt sober and deliberate reflection. I'm not condemning medicine. He qualified that at the beginning. But it's something to think about. You're, 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 that's not necessary. I'll, I'll think about it later. You may not be able to think about it. You don't trust last-minute conversions. I have a lot of notes on this, but I want to move on. Do not trust last-minute conversions. The thief on the cross is not to give you hope to postpone preparation for death. It chiefly exists to show you the grace of God. It's not to give you an excuse. It, the exception is not the, 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 norm, the norm. If you now reject the word of God and mock or postpone dealing with God's mercies, offers of mercies, under the pretense of saying a few magical words on your deathbed, or under the pretense of saying, I will think about death when it comes. Think about these words from William Perkins, who was a source in my, in my sermon, his, his essay on dying well. Here's William Perkins, a, a Puritan way back in England. It is a just judgment that they who did condemn God in their life should be condemned by God in death. And that they who did forget God in their health should be quite forgotten by God in sickness. There is only one example of dying, of one dying in faith who did not live in faith, and that's the thief on the cross. Don't think that you'll, uh, it's unnecessary. Okay, third point under doctrine. And here's, here's the, the point here is obstacles to this exercise. And I, I really want you to think about this, friends. You may not object to this exercise, but there are obstacles in your way and in my way to this exercise. You know, you leave from this sermon and you don't give due diligence to how you should really respond to it. A couple, a couple of things will come into your way. There's four. Riches. Um, some of you may be personally wealthy. I have no idea. And I hope you're using your wealth for the kingdom of God. It's not a sin to be wealthy. But it can be a problem. It can be an obstacle. We read from Luke 12, didn't we? Okay. Um, he says this rich man in Luke 12, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. What was his response? How do these riches affect him? Take thy ease. And God says, fool, your soul is required of you. Mark 4.19 talks about the deceitfulness of riches. My life is good. What do I need? 
I have a nice house. I have a nice car. I have food. I have a really good health care plan. In fact, I have my membership in my gym and my personal trainer keeps me healthy. Riches. Busyness. This is a big one. Busyness. Now, friends, we're all busy, and I hope you're working for the Lord. But there's a time to be busy preparing for death, and there's things to be doing. And all, and all of life, like, as I said, is all centered around that. I mean, in a certain sense, our life is centered around the glory of God, but you understand I'm, I'm speaking in this context. Busyness. With lawful things, you're working. You're going to work tomorrow. Maybe you worked yesterday because you have to provide for your family, and you're working. And you're going to school, and you're studying because you want to go to this college. You want to go to this, this master's degree program, and you're, you're studying. And you have 15 minutes to read the Bible. You're tending to little kids. You're hanging out with friends and family. You're getting kids through high school, and then you're getting kids through college. These are all good things. All these things are lawful and they have their place. But notice Mark 4, 18 through 19. Christ is explaining the parable of the sower. He says, These are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word and the cares of this world. They enter in and they choke the word. The cares of this world, um, specifically or generally in, just in, in receiving the word, and, and the word, you know, it's, it doesn't have fruit because of the cares of this world. Busyness. Things that are otherwise lawful. I'm not talking about ungodly busyness. Otherwise lawful business, busyness. The, the third um, obstacle, modern medicine. I really think this is helpful, friends. Please think about this for a second. And again, I'm not against, I, I, I'm not against doctors or nurses or anything like that. Um, there's a smidgen of truth to the, to the modern man idea, you know, like, oh, we're going we're gonna to extend our life and, you know, health, everyone's going to live to be longer and stuff. Because the fact of the matter is, is healthcare has, in my understanding, improved the last hundred years. And people are living longer and the quality of life is better. It's true. There's, there's a smidgen of truth to that. We don't see death as much now. People go to the hospital. They die sedated, not screaming in pain. They die on ventilators. They're covered up. They go to the mortuary. Their bodies are kept and prepared by professionals instead of the family. Many folks don't even choose to have an open casket. I'm not condemning any of these things. Okay, I'm not saying, you know, I have to say that again. I want you all to know I'm a guest preacher. I'm just getting you to think about the world that you live in. Death is hidden. When it's, when it's possible, I think an open casket is biblical. I think, I think that when it's possible, you know, it's not like a required thing or something. But what's the last dead body? What's the, what's the last dead body you've seen? Have you ever seen a dead body? The last thing, the last obstacle I'll bre- mention briefly that's behind all this is the devil. It has been said by a man that I respect that the devil will allow you to read your Bible. He'll allow you to even pray. He doesn't want you to meditate on the Bible. He doesn't want you to think about it. Paul talks about Satan's devices. 
The sower soweth the word, and these are they that by the, the wayside uh, um, where the word is sown. When they have heard the word, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word. Last point under doctrine. Comforts in contemplating one's own death. The blessed promise of God's sovereignty. God has, I want to encourage you, brethren, three comforts. The blessed promise of God's sovereignty. The time, the location, the manner, all the circumstances of your, of your death have been appointed by God. By God. Acts 4.28. For to do, they're talking about the death of Christ by Pontius Pilate. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before, so to be, to be done. Referring to the death of Christ. The blessed promise of continued union with Christ. Think about this. Are you united to Christ? I hope all of you understand what that means. And when you die, you're still united to Christ. Okay, what are the, what are, what are the benefits which believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do it merely pass in their glory. Their bodies being still united to Christ. Do rest in the grave until the resurrection. For I am persuaded that neither death shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The blessed promise of his special presence in such times. Don't fear your deathbed experience. God has special blessings and promises for you, dear believer. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. One example of this that was very touching to me, and I was reading Archibald Alexander's book, Reflections or Thoughts on Religious Experience. This is a, I can't pronounce his name, it begins with an O, Johannes something. He lived in the time of Luther. I'm going to read this to you as an example of this. He's dying on his bed, surrounded by friends. He's an old man. He's lived the life of a Protestant theologian and reformer. He's a godly man. To his friend coming unto him, this man says, What shall I say unto you? News. I shall shortly be with Christ my Lord. Then being asked whether the light in the room did trouble him, touching his breast, he said, there is light enough. He rehearsed the whole Psalm, of 50, of, uh, the whole Psalm 51 with deep sighs from the bottom of his breast. And a little after, he said, Save me, Lord Jesus. He's experiencing the presence of God on his deathbed. Well, I don't want to preach too long, and I do want to apply this more. So, friends, now we turn to the application. And I have eight applications. There's really two. Ponder and prepare. But I'm going to say there's eight. First, ponder on the fact that the day of death is coming for you. Have you pondered when you'd get married? 
Maybe you've pondered about your next vacation. You've pondered when school will get out. Have you actually pondered what it would be like to die? When you would die? How you will die? And more importantly, are you ready to die? My youngest son, he, uh, we don't allow him to go into the street. Like it's strictly forbidden, like without our, our presence. So you're not riding his bike because he's just not aware of what's going on. And many people live this life and they're just not aware that they're going to die because they don't ponder it. Secondly, ponder on the fact that that day is the great culmination day. Think about it. It's the great culmination day. Some of you have read Pilgrim's Progress, and you're reading this long book, and it's all leading up to when Christian and Hopeful cross the river, and they go up to the gate. And as you're reading it, you're excited. You've come to the end of the book. It's a little sobering to think about. He's dying. And there's no turning back. Friends, some of you here, and I have no idea who that is, but some of you may, may have had a divorce, a lawful divorce. You know, you, you get married, and it's like a permanent thing, isn't it? But it's not actually really all that permanent. Your, your spouse may die, or you might have a lawful divorce. So you, you prepare for marriage because it's, it's a big deal, and it is a big deal. But there's, you, you can recover from a bad, bad marriage, a bad wedding day. You can't recover from a bad death day. It's the great culmination day. There's no turning back. Our elder prayed it in his prayer. Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment, all of you will appear before Jesus Christ. Are you ready? I want to speak to you who, who, who you don't know if you're converted. Maybe you know you're not converted. You're not a believer. You're here because your parents drug you here or your spouse brought you here. Revelation 20, 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. Notice that he says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And then down in verse 14, it says this. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Third, ponder on the bliss of heaven itself. A little different. Changing the topic here a little bit, am I? Am I? I want you to think about this too. Because some of the words that I just said were very heavy. And the Holy Spirit's pressing your heart that you are saved. And that's, that's a blessed thing. And you understand. And I want you to think about heaven. I want you to think about the bliss of heaven. Think about what it would be like 
for angels to come down and to take your soul to heaven. Luke 16, 22. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. The Bible teaches that angels will take our soul to heaven. Have you ever thought about that? You should. You'll be conscious and you'll be thinking, oh, angels are taking me to heaven. What an amazing thing. I wonder how long it's going to take to get there. It might, it might be an instant. I don't know. In the Pilgrim's Progress, he, he kind of makes it like a time. that He's going up with the shining ones, you know. Makes you think. Think about your entrance into heaven. Your first sight of heaven. Your reception into heaven. People acknowledging your arrival into heaven. No pain. No sin. No sorrow. And here's something I want to emphasize. No Struggle. You, you, you men here, you're, you're busy providing for your families. And you have a duty to do that. And tomorrow is another day, isn't it? You have to go to work. Because you have to have food you know, on the table and money in the bank. And maybe you're an athlete and you, know, you can't just stop training. You know, you're a soldier maybe and you can't just stop training. You know, you can't just not nurse your baby. Um, you can't just stop taking care of you. You're constantly struggling, serving God, fighting sin, fighting your own thoughts and your own heart that are, you know, what's the next sin? You have to be watchful on your own heart. In heaven, it's all over. There's no more struggle. I can't even imagine what that's like. That's a sin now. You can't just stop. You can't push pause on life. Push pause. No. But hear the promise. Hear, hear this. Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. What is he going to say? Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. The bliss of heaven. Fellowship with others. Moses, Rahab, I imagine we're going to see him, Christ. John, the disciple, he saw Christ uh, on, on the earth. He saw him after he rose. Then on the island of Patmos, he saw Christ, and he fell down. What's it going to be like? We'll need glorified bodies to take in the beatific vision. It's being magnificent, unspeakable. Ponder, fourthly, how little your earthly pain will be compared to your heavenly gain. How little your earthly pain will be compared to your heavenly gain. Some of you here may be, you're Christian, you're a Christian. You, you, you are a sincere Christian, and you're a little bit angry with God. Because someone died, or you didn't marry the person you wanted to marry, or, you know, I don't know. And you have no right to complain with God. He saved you. And when you step back and you think about heaven, suddenly all your complaints appear to you as sinful and as wicked as they really are. You have no reason to complain. Well, the fifth application is to prepare by asking God. 
Psalm 90, 12, Psalm 39, 4, which I've read, are prayers. Lord, make me to know my end. Ask God. Start with that. That's a simple application. Ask God to prepare you for death. Maybe, maybe you are too busy. Maybe you are distracted. Maybe you have succumbed to one of the obstacles or objections, and you need to repent and ask God, help me, help me to know mine end and how frail I am. Next application, I believe it's the sixth one. Prepare by submitting to God. I don't know if, if anyone that's dying here, but even if you're not dying here, it's your duty to die in obedience. Maybe you don't want to die. Maybe you're, you're a widow or a widower here, and, you're, and your spouse died five, early, five years earlier than you did. Submit to God. Be submissive to his timing. And that starts now. I'm talking about your own death. There's accounts, especially before modern medicine. People just having, they're on their deathbed for days and weeks. And they have, a, they have a need to submit to God. Christ said, Father, into thy hands I com- commit my spirit. He, he submitted to God. God, I don't want cancer. I'm not supposed to die, God. Submit to God. Seventh, coming to the end of my sermon here. Two more applications. Prepare by disposing your lands and your goods and your inheritance. Not as important as the next one, but I want to mention it. It's the example of the patriarchs. Abraham, Genesis 25, 5-6. Isaac, Genesis 27. Jacob, Genesis 49. Even Christ on the cross looked at John and said, Here, care, care for my mother. 1 Timothy 5, 8, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. Some of you, um, even if you're not really rich, you need, to, you need to make a will, because your kids might, might argue about it, if you haven't. This is the way of disposing, especially if, you're, if you are wealthy, giving it to the church, perhaps, or to other um, appropriate places. Write a will and use it as a, as, a, as a means to have a conversation with someone that might need to hear this. Dear son, sweet daughter, I wrote a will and I want to talk to you about it because one day I'm going to die. Oh, and by the way, one day you're going to die too. Well, the last application is to... Prepare by spending your time in the means whereby your sins might be removed and pardoned. Prepare by spending your time in the means whereby your sins might be removed and pardoned. It's not my attention at this point in the sermon to preach another 15 minutes on the gospel. It's more to speak to it briefly and to point you to it. A quick example. Um, a few days ago, we were coming back from somewhere, going up to our front door, and we saw a snake in the bushes. 
My kids know exactly what I'm talking about. And we were looking, and we were like, oh, is it poisonous? You know, we were trying to figure out, and no one was going up close to it. Why? Because it might be poisonous. And that bite would have a sting to it. It could harm us. The sting of death. What is the sting of death? I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Some of you know, know the, the last part, but I want you to think about it. The illustration's there, right? Snakes are harmless if you know they're not poisonous. They're like floppy little things. They can't do anything to you. Well, we might not like them, but they're harmless if they're not poisonous. Really. It's the poison that makes it harmful. The sting of death is sin. Let's say you're a Christian here. And you're in sin. The Holy Spirit's very faint. Because you've quenched the Holy Spirit. Now, you're still united to Christ if you are actually a Christian. That's precious doctrine. But confess your sin to the Lord. Confess your sin that you've committed 30 years ago to that person and own up to it. Some of you here may not have real strong assurance. Not everyone dies like that Johannes O person. You know, and, and that's okay. That doesn't mean they're going to hell. Okay? Not everyone dies with a great peace. Well, why? Well, part of that is this. Confess your sins. Draw near to the Lord. Your sin quenches the Spirit. That special presence of Christ at death can be quenched by sin. Now, the great sting, the great sting is to be in sin. Is to not know how your sins can be removed and pardoned. And I want to say to you, the great preparation for death is to know Christ Jesus. Christ died to pay the penalty for sin. And Christ arose to destroy death. Christ is the one you must know. Listen to this verse. John 6, 27. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. Christ Jesus, I point you to him. If you're not converted here, if you're not really clear on the gospel, I mean, I've been preaching for over 50 minutes. I could preach for two more hours explaining everything to you. But instead, I point you to him. Go home and understand why Jesus is so loved by so many people here. Why is it that Jesus is preached by Boyd Miller every Sunday? What's the deal? Why is he so important? Know it. Seek him. And you will find him. And and death will have no sting upon you.